Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. All right. So good afternoon, everyone. This is Matt Chancy, and this is another episode of the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Larry Pino from Pino Nicholson. He is an attorney, a commercial attorney with commercial law and business consulting, but above and beyond just being an attorney, he also is an entrepreneur, not just an entrepreneurial spirit, but a real entrepreneur. And um, he has also uh, published 14 books. Um so clearly tons of knowledge there that he's going to be able to share with us today. So hold on to your hat. So everybody, Larry Pino, thanks so much for joining us today. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, Matt. I've thoroughly enjoyed, by the way, this uh, introductory conversation we've been having. It's been great. <laughs> well, good stuff. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. So so very good. And it turns out, you know, what we found out in the internet is we're about to be neighbors. <laughs> Literally one minute away from us. That's pretty funny. <laughs> there you go. Well, it works out. So, hey, um, Let's start really high level. You know, on the pre-call, we talked a little bit about your commercial lawyer. So what is a commercial lawyer? What do you do? So um, commercial law is broad, of course. So it encompasses any number of things. Maybe the first designation between the two is uh, commercial litigation or commercial transactional. And so from my standpoint, I've done both quite a bit of litigation over the years, but pretty much nowadays it's about 90% transactional. It's about 10% litigation. So what does commercial anticipate? It talks about anything related to business, anything related to real estate, um, you know, mergers and acquisitions, uh, buy and sell of businesses and of real estate, of course, joint venture relationships between and among parties, um, anything in the real estate field like development work, anything in the investment and securities for uh, fields. Um, all of those are sort of within the context of what a commercial lawyer does. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. And, you know, sometimes they specialize, but because I never, you know, I went to sort of a big law law school, which was New York University Law School, uh, but I had no interest in any of those offers. I mean, you know, the big law firms and, you know, they'll churn 20 hour days and uh, they'll churn you for two, three, four years. I had zero interest in that. And besides, I always wanted to work for myself. Well, somebody so I, taught you early on that billable hours was a miserable thing. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, so I, I came back to Orlando to Winter Park, actually, where uh, where my parents had moved down from New Jersey. And um, I just, um, you know, I got a renovated building or I didn't get the renovated building. I got a building in downtown Orlando, renovated it and opened up a law practice. And um, I put a, you know, a sign on the door, I are a lawyer, and um, started looking for clients. And uh, that's kind of what started it off back in, you know, back in those days. So today, you and you've got six attorneys that work for you today in the different aspects of law. So how did those initial clients start showing up, knocking on the door saying, hey, I, you know, I'm I'm looking for a commercial lawyer. I got a business transaction, a real estate transaction, an M&A yeah. transaction. How did they start finding you knowing that you were the guy solving the problem? Yeah, that's funny. So um, so we had the office and obviously I had to have a secretary. In those days, they were called secretaries, <laughs> uh, legal secretaries. Um, and so I hired this high school graduate whose name was Cecilia. She had never been a legal secretary, but the truth of the matter is I had never been a lawyer. So <laughs> it was the blind leading the blind. Um, she was Cuban, still is, I'm sure. And so, and I'm Italian. So we drank, and I had this wonderful espresso machine. 
So we drank lots of espresso and uh, looked at the phone and the phone was not ringing. And, uh, you know, she had a setup. She was all set with her Selectric three typewriters. And uh, we had nothing happening, man. So a friend of mine had invited me to a Kiwanis Club meeting. And, you know, back in the day when Kiwanis Clubs and all of these types of uh, organizations were pretty strong, a lot less so now, but, you know, the Rotary Clubs and all that. And so I went there and I'm sitting there and you're talking about, oh, 75 people for a lunch. And uh, they're all men. They're all in suits and all that kind of thing. So certainly from a clientele standpoint like that. And the president goes up and talks about, you know, whatever the, the issues of the day are, and then turns it over to the activities guy who introduces a speaker. And then the speaker talks for about 20 minutes and um, takes a few questions, gets some applause, and that's the end of it. So I come back to Cecilia and I say, I got it, man. I understand. Because I was a debater in college. I was at Notre Dame. I was a debater there. And law school, I I actually coached the undergraduate debate team at NYU. So I had no problem standing in front of a group of people and talking. So Cecilia starts banging out letters. We got a list of all of the organizations, civic organizations in town. And we sent out a letter. You know, my name is Larry Pino. Um, I am an attorney in downtown Orlando. Of course, I am. But, uh, you know, I do talks in the following areas. I haven't done it yet, but. I do talks in the following area, you know, how to protect yourself with a contract, um, how to buy your business, how to sell a business, um, and so forth and so on. I gave him like five topics. If you're looking for a speaker, um, you know, please give us a call. And every day, Cecilia would bang. This is prior to computers. So Mm -hmm. she's banging out like 30 letters a day to all of the organizations. And literally, the phone starts ringing. And I start going out and I do breakfast, lunch, dinner, didn't matter. And I do a talk. And um, um, as afterwards, you know, I finish the talk. And if anybody has any questions at all, feel free. So they'd answer, they'd ask me some questions. And um, I'd say, absolutely, that's a great question. Uh, blah, 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 blah. You know, if you'd like more information, come on up and talk to me after. And I'll tell you within seven months, I had pages of clients. And it all came from doing those organizations. And that's literally what eventually led to my first major business, which was marketing seminar companies, uh, seminars across the country. Nice. Honestly, not much different than the way I've built my business, just speaking in front of groups over the years and, you know, and educating people on topics they're somewhat unfamiliar with and saying, hey, if you want to talk more about this, uh, that's 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 awesome. And I have been to a Kiwanis meeting and a Rotary meeting and all that stuff back in the day and part of Toastmasters and stuff. I know know all that stuff that you're talking about. (laughs) So it was great. You know, it was it was it was really a wonderful entry got me involved in a business that I thoroughly enjoyed, which was doing seminars and educational programs, uh, speaking to adults. And sure. um, we eventually ended up um, with, you know, of the 80 startups that I had over the years, um, several of them were in the training and education business for adults. Uh, one of them in the very beginning was called the National Mortgage Investors Institute, where we taught people how to buy and sell privately held real estate notes. And it was a very intense program uh, that consisted of five full days in a boot camp format at a hotel. And we marketed it like $6,000. And they absolutely had to take a certification exam before we graduated them. And we gave them a certification as a certified mortgage investor and uh, literally just loved it. Uh, We traveled around the country. I was gone pretty much um, every weekend. And that eventually led to an International Factoring Institute, mm-hmm. which eventually led to the American Cash Flow Institute, where, you know, that was one of the books that I wrote, Cash In on Cash Flow. And uh, that was the Simon & Schuster one. Okay. Uh, and on and on and on. And so for 20 years, I appeared in front of hundreds of thousands of people in the boot camps, less than that, about 130,000, and taught them for days on end, eventually, I ended up, especially after I got married, I ended up starting to go from five days to three days, two days. And then I would just simply show up on the last day sure. uh, of the training program. But 
but that was all. And, you know, every time I ended up at a training program, I ended up with clients. Well, you learn, you know, and I don't think everybody understands this as a mechanism, but when you put the education out there, whether it's in the form of the book, a training program or a certification, there are certain humans that are going to listen and do nothing. There are certain humans that are going to listen and then go try to do it themselves. There are certain humans that are going to listen and then go, hey, how do I partner with that guy to help him do it with me, right? And I think that's the people that you're really trying to partner with in that scenario is just saying, you know, look, you know, I'm... I've done this. I've got some authority. I've got some expertise. You're about to go down a path that I've already been down multiple times, either myself or with clients and tandem solving those problems. Maybe it makes for a good partnership, right? It's not, I'm not telling you this is the only way to do it. I'm suggesting like, if you know, if you don't want to figure all this out on your own, you know, maybe, maybe I'm a good option, right? And, you know, I think that that's probably just from a, from a branding standpoint, Matt, it's probably maybe, at the heartbeat of, of sort of the clients that I've got, because the clients I represent, they're, uh, they're syndicators. I do an awful lot of securities work, um, all the securities, you know, the reg D's, the reg A's and all that. And so they're syndicators, they're real estate developers, real estate investors. Uh, they own businesses, they're entrepreneurs. And when they're coming to me, it's pretty much, you know, to me, law and business are two sides of the same coin. And so when I'm listening to what they've got, um, I'm listening as a lawyer, but I'm also listening as a fellow business person, uh, you know, and who's communicating it. And I'm looking at it from every angle. I'm looking at it from a legal standpoint, of course, but also I'm, I'm responding to the marketing implications, uh, what might be better branding, you know, what might be a more appropriate way to productize something or, or even to release it or commercialize it. And all that's just, that's going through my mind at the same time. So it doesn't take long to really sort of build that trust that they're not going to get sort of a silo, you know, of information that they're going to get the broad scope of anything that has to do that would be relevant to them as a business owner. Well, you're adding value in multiple channels simultaneously because you have a more diversified background in the things that you've been exposed to and that you've done. Whereas, you know, attorneys are notorious for being no people, right? No, you can't do that. No risk, risk, compliance, compliance. No, no. Right. But you're looking at it through, through your entrepreneurial lens from an opportunistic standpoint going, but if we get this right, what is the opportunity if we get it right? How do we maximize the value of getting it right while protect ourselves on the other side from heaven forbid that we we don't do everything right, right. You know? absolutely yeah there, it's a rare circumstance that i'm going to say uh hey this is a line you can't you know you cannot cross it's a rare rare circumstance for one thing most people once they understand that line they're not going to cross it anyway it's really the, the real issue is within the context of what i'm trying to accomplish here larry what is the best way to do that obviously i don't want to run afoul uh, but i also want it to be effective it's like, absolutely, no question about it. So here's what I might suggest. So what you're going to do is you're going to figure it out, not only based upon what's the appropriate way to do it, uh, what's the lawful way to do it, what's the way that will reduce, that will um, significantly reduce your exposure to liability, and at the same time will be effective from a commercial standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. The old expression, there's what more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah, for sure. Right. So you can look at the problem from a few different ways to a few different lenses and come up with potential solutions. And the other thing I try to tell people all the time is just because you could doesn't mean you should do it that way or go forward. Right. It might not make sense in its current iteration. There might be the genesis of a great idea in there that can be executed on in a different way, but that might not be the best business model for whatever that particular product or strategy is. So, no, I, I agree with that. And you know what, too, especially when you're dealing with entrepreneurs that that many times they're just talking to themselves. So they don't have an opportunity. They're, they're talking to themselves or they're talking to individuals who can't always assist them in moving the thing forward. So to actually be sitting there, somebody from an advisory standpoint, who's basically looking at it and just asking the questions um, that says, well, you know what, I get it, but what do you think the heartbeat of this business, of this particular product is? And who would it serve in this capacity? Now, if you were to change this in this particular way, how do you think that might affect its, its marketability? And these are just questions that 
you know, for somebody on the other side who maybe doesn't necessarily have exposure to that type of questioning. So I have, for example, clients that will literally once a month, uh, twice a month, just send me set up with Kathy and just send me an agenda of just brainstorming, just just half a dozen different topics that they want to brainstorm about because, you know, they're CEOs themselves, they're founders of their own businesses, and they just don't have the opportunity to really brainstorm in an open way or in a creative way necessarily. Well, what percentage of the population today is is entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial or CEO types, right? It's 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 in the minority. It's less than 10%. Yeah. Yeah, probably. It's a hundred percent of who I get, but uh right, a hundred percent, right? So you've got a bunch of people that think alike, but if you go outside of your ecosystem and you talk about the average person, I mean you might have a CEO or a business owner type, but that doesn't mean that the people that they've become friends with, maybe a guy he plays golf with and some other stuff. They might have jobs. They might have nine to fives. They might clock in and work for somebody else and not make all those business strategy type decisions. So they don't, you're right. Their sounding board isn't their circle of friends that they hang out with and they do other stuff with. So they have to lean outside of that circle a little bit. Yeah, no question. No question. No, I was just going to say, you know, then when, when I turn over to the other side, like for example, you know, I've, with all the businesses that I've done, you know, the one that I'm doing now, is Tuscan Gardens, which is Tuscan Gardens Senior Living. So we have three communities in the state of Florida. And I founded that as I founded, I've started up every business I've done. And I started that back in right after the Great Recession. So, you know, looked around in 2011, 2012, really just kind of felt that based on, you know, my experiences with my mother, that this was something that I really wanted to do. And at the same time, I told myself, what am I doing? What, what am I doing? Senior living, what do I know about taking care of seniors? You know, what do I know about healthcare? So I really debated for close to a year until I finally said, no, I really want to do this. And so I started conceptualizing what would it look like uh, for me to take, you know, what would it have to be like for me to put my, my mother in and um, uh, into it? And that's kind of what happened with Tuscan Gardens. So I, I started it. We found our first land in 2014. And then we opened up our first community in 2016 at 136 units of assisted living, enhanced assisted living and memory care. And that was my first exposure to senior living. But the reason I mentioned that in this context is, you know, talk about a group of people who are not entrepreneurial. I mean, you know, they come from the old sort of the assisted living came out of what was originally the old nursing homes. And, uh, you know, eventually these things called assisted living uh, communities came up, but they're just very entrenched. And it's like, this is the way they do it and all of that. So from day one, which is why I wrote Reinventing Senior Living, um, I wrote that book primarily based on my experience in re-examining senior living to take a look at it. And it's the art of living with purpose, passion, and joy. Because my whole concept there was, you know, you have to take, after seeing all of these facilities in the Central Florida area, it's much better now, by the way, but back mm. then, and, you know, they're, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, man, they're just warehousing old people. That's all they're doing. They're not providing a, a life um, and certainly not a life of purpose, passion, and joy. So when I wrote Reinventing Senior Living, it was really intended to be aspirational because I wanted to have, I wanted Tuscan Gardens to be an aspiration of the way I wanted it to look. So that's what ultimately happened. So I created Tuscan Gardens with the great big ceilings and, uh, you know, the, uh, the wonderful herbal plants uh, and exposed Tuscan kitchen so that you could actually have basil and tomato sauce out there in the public so that they can actually waft the Italian aromas you know, making sure that uh, there were not these long hallways uh, that people have to walk down and lots of fresh light coming, streaming down from 16 foot ceilings uh, and so forth and so on. But it was really every single thing that I did was a departure from the common ways that those things were, sure. you know, you take, you took a, take a look at those, those things in that time. And it was just very, very traditional and not, not at all similar to what it was going to become. 
it was cold. It was very institutional, like you said, like the way, and you'll, you'll know this because I'm, you know, back in the day, there was a, a very common footprint for the way that like a senior living center was laid out. It was about 250 beds. It had two wings that kind of yeah. you know, did like a U a little bit. And one side would kind of be, you know, a certain level of care. And the other side would kind of maybe be a second level of care. And um, you're going to totally love this. I have told people for years, there's a quick little life hack to deter. If you're putting a senior in place, and I've been involved in some of this transition, you know, um, you know, very familiar with the concept of geriatric care management and how you transition a senior, like been involved in some of that stuff. Um, One of the life hacks to find a good place to put your parents is all senior living communities have a lasagna night. Every single one of them will have a lasagna night. Go to lasagna night. The family's allowed to go to try the facility and put your mom in the place with the best lasagna because that pays attention to the care and the and the diligence that they put into the small details. Like you said, the basil or the oregano and the aroma and stuff. And I'm like, if you pick the place with the best lasagna, that you have a high probability of picking the place that's going to treat mom better with all the little details. Yeah, absolutely. 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 So in any event, so at this point, I sort of, I managed to do that. Um, and it's sort of an application of this concept that we're talking about of entrepreneurism in what was a very, just very staid environment. Um, and just, you know, one by one, just revitalizing it into a way. And now, of course, we've got the three communities. And then the balance of my time is just spent with my clients. There you go. And I mean, look, and obviously with the fact that you work with a ton of entrepreneurial clients, you get to, when I get a new client, my clients also skew very entrepreneurial, right? So, you know, when they have to tell me who they are, what they did, how they did it, I get this kind of orientation of everything that they've experienced in their life and how they got to the point where they became as successful as they are. And you get to hear their journey. And, and in that journey, they, they tell you the good stuff, but they also tell you some of the mistakes they made, some of the bad partners they had along the way, and some of the lessons that they've learned. So it's like getting a PhD in business by getting all these collaborative sessions with these other business owners, right? Absolutely. There's no question. Every yeah. one of them. Every one of them. They have such unique stories about how they ended up where they where they ended up, right? Yeah, no question. And I'm sure you do the same thing. So I start off and of course, Zoom has been very, very good to me. So, you know, the, the value of Zoom, because I have clients across the country and the whole, the, the, you start off with Zoom and I would generally speaking, just do a one hour Zoom call just to just every, understand every aspect of exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, what they've experienced, what they're doing now, what their aspirations are for the future, where they want to go, what, you know, what do they look to this relationship for and to accomplish and all of that. And it's great fun. And usually, by the way, in many of those cases, I also end up enjoying the conversation where they bring their spouses into. Because sure. that gives you that gives you a completely... You know, you could be having one person say one thing and it's like, well, that's not exactly true, is it? And, uh, and you get that type of thing. So very, very strongly way down. No, I, per- I prefer those conversations. The more people I can get engaged with my clients earlier on, not only them, but I try to ask for every decision maker that's in the mm-hmm. process. So many of them have a CPA or an attorney that they're working with that has added value and been part of that journey with them. Hey, let me, let's include them in this story. I want to see things that maybe they suggested along the way that the client did or did not take advantage of. Maybe they didn't understand it or process it at the time, right? It didn't, it didn't make sense. So I try to bring every, everybody that's been involved in kind of the thought leadership process. And then if we're, like you said, talking about transitionally, where are we going from here, right? So who are the next people that are on and ultimately be involved? Do they know what you've done to get here and what you're going to try to do next? And how do we incorporate that into the conversation as well? So I, I, w- I would imagine for your particular area of subject matter expertise, that would be critical because you want them involved from the very beginning. You know, not yes. only are they producing the history, but they're also going to be, they're, they're also trusted advisors to a large extent too. 
Well, that's the thing, right? Like my area of knowledge has become very specialized over the years. And most people should not possess the knowledge that I possess. There's no practical reason why the average person could. And it's not meant to say that I never suggest that I'm smarter than the other person I'm talking to. I have more specialized time focused on a very unique niche that if you put the time in it, you would know it the way that I know it. But you spent all those years developing really good, trusted relationships with people that would benefit from the IP that I have. So could you go back and develop my IP? You certainly could. Could I build a business where I had trust of a bunch of clients over a long period of time? I certainly could. But the highest and best use of each of us today is to leverage one another what we've got. You've got trust in a relationship and a history with that client. I've got knowledge that might make sense and add value at where that client is now in their life. We could leverage each other and solve this problem more efficiently. Yeah, and absolutely, Matt. That's why I'm going to be calling you, man. <laughs> well, that wasn't the intent, but that's how I do it. So, uh, so of all the things that you do from a transactional nature, you know, we talked about before, because obviously there was some litigation work and stuff on the transactional nature. Are you more buy side? Are you more on the on the formation or are you more on the sell side when something's over and done? How does that work? How does that split itself? Yeah, you know, we do uh, so on the uh, M&A stuff. The buy and sell stuff. It's really just, it's it's literally a hundred percent agnostic. We have clients who are buying, clients who are selling. If anything, we probably are more on the sale side than we are on the buy, but I wouldn't you know, I wouldn't rank it um, you know, maybe 55, 45 or something. Otherwise, it's both of those. Um, but I would say probably we do quite a few private transactions. We represent a number of um, you know, investors who lend private money. So okay. we do a number of lending transactions. That's probably even more than on the buy and sell side. Um, and then I would say probably the category that we do the most of is really uh, security syndications. Okay. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, because I don't know, let's assume that people on there don't know what a security syndication is. What is it? So just start with a very easy, let's, you have one apartment building across the street from me in the, in the office here. And it's got, oh, 140 units. Um, the thing is going to go for whatever, uh, $14 million. So you've got somebody who has a million dollars and he really needs about $3 million. So he puts together a private offering to go get the other $2 million. And uh, they have that $3 million. They go get a mortgage uh, for the balance and then they acquire that apartment building. So the syndication or the private offering is the opportunity to bring investors into an investment that they have the opportunity to produce a rate of return on. Now, most of the time, I gave you easy easy numbers because it's a small deal, but typically it's going to be larger than that. So typically, um, a syndication will be at a low of $10 million. Um, They'll average in at somewhere between um, $10 million low to $50 million. That would be sort of the sweet spot of these types of private offerings. I've done some as high as 100 million, but generally speaking, when you're now above 100 million, um, you're probably now talking about different types of entities and different types of syndications. But if you wanted to raise $25 million because you wanted to go buy um, a portfolio of three self-storage facilities, um, you'll do a $25 million uh, um, syndication and you'll go out and start contacting uh, if it's a if one particular type of syndication is a 506C, mm-hmm. uh, which came out under the Jobs Act, that gives you the opportunity to market, except that you have to limit yourself to accredited investors. So, well, I always say the C stands for crowdfunding, which that's not true, but. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> but it, but the C allows for crowdfunding, which public communication telling people about it out there in a public forum without making sure that they're necessarily an accredited investor before you can kind of put it out there a little bit. And then when they respond, you can qualify them to make sure they're an accredited investor. Right. Yeah. So the 506C is an exempt offering, strictly limited to accredited investors as investors. And the only other thing is that it requires validation of their accredited investor status, as opposed to the um, older one, which was the 506B, that was self-validating. But in any event, you know, so very typically, you know, the, the, the ones that we do the most of are going to be in the 25 to $35 million level. And they're typically going to be, there are some which are blind pools, 
uh, you know, this fund is going to be for the purpose of finding the following types of assets. So that's a blind pool. But certainly the majority of them are dealing with, like, for example, we just finished up yesterday, uh, two very, very large. The, the equity component is 20 million on my syndicator client and another 25 million on another syndicator uh, that we're not representing together on a, a portfolio of apartment buildings in the Chicago area. Um, so, but that's a little bit out of the ordinary, but typically, you know, $25 million to $35 million for some configuration of assets. Um, and these are different types of asset classes. Understood. So they have a mandate of we're going to go buy X, Y, Z. Maybe they've already got identified assets in the sure. pipeline. And they just need the capital to come in. And these are primarily partnerships. Yes. No, I use I use an LLC structure. An LLC structure, limited okay. liability company. Gotcha, limited liability. So you're they're looking, but they're looking for limited investors that will come in that are accredited status to let an operator or a sponsor execute on a business plan or a strategy to be able to over a defined period of time. They've got kind of a defined business plan. You're going to give us the money. Here's the expectation of how we're going to split the profits if we succeed. Absolutely correct. That's exactly the way it is. The ones that are the easiest to sell are not the blind pools. Um, right. the, the ones that they're easiest to sell is, so for example, we have someone that uh, does self-storage, for example. And so they had five identified and they needed to raise the money. And so they're doing sources of uses, of course. They're identifying projections. They're identifying what their history is of the um, facilities that they have managed in the past and so forth. And so we put those all into a bow. Uh, we put them all into an offering with all of the related ancillary documents. And we, you know, typically make them, I call it prettify them. We make them pretty and consumerized uh, so that they can actually have some sex appeal in the, in the offering, even though it's doing all of the bells and whistles that that legal documents have to do. Well, if no one in the history of the world has ever bought one of these investments by looking at a private placement memorandum, because it explains all of the negative risk factors in a massive amount of detail and all the terrible costs associated with it. It doesn't talk about the opportunity if you actually get the thing right. You yeah. know? <laughs> and if they talk about the opportunity, they have to disclaim it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, never did anyone read a PPM and go, that sounds like a great idea. There I'd love go. to do that. I, I want this. That's right. <laughs> totally understand. You know, and so, you know, today when the when the accredited investor rules were written, it was only two percent of the population when those rules were actually created. And today I think it represents about 18% of the population today. So, you know, you know, money supply has created more dollars, inflation no over time. Yeah, the accredited investor net, uh, uh, population out there is a pretty big population for sure. Yeah, it's a lot more than it used to be for sure. But I know that, you know, there's still a ton of people out there that would qualify for status. But because of, you know, and you can maybe speak to this better than I can, you know, a lot of the investment opportunities that are presented through commercialized investment houses, big brand name financial services companies, they don't really sell these type of private placement offerings on them. You probably have an opinion on why they don't. Oh, primarily the risk. There's an enormous amount of risk when you have the broker dealers. You know, it has to be, they, they have to go through so, so much due diligence. And on top of that, there's not only do you have securities regulations, you also have FINRA because they have to be involved in, they have to be members of FINRA. So you have two bodies of regulatory and FINRA is extremely uh, just, it's very terse and dense in relationship to what is basically federal and state securities laws. So they, they have that that they have to contend with and sort of marketing, just going back to the marketing, it's kind of like, you know, this is targeted to make 14%. However, do not assume that you're going to make 14%. I mean, it's like you can't get away with any marketing when it comes to getting through FINRA regs uh, on the marketing side. So it's tough in that capacity. Second, because it's not, it's not ultimately registered, um, it's an exempt from registration offering. So because of that, you know, your liability is substantial to the investor himself or herself. And so you have that. Third, the responsibility from a fiduciary standpoint on the broker dealer is such that 
they have to go, to go do a deep dive that virtually no investor would do. Uh, and that's part of their responsibility um, sure. as a fiduciary. So for all of those reasons, there's got to be really strong, strong, strong organization supporting the offering. And there has to be a very strong confidence level in the offering itself uh, for them to go through the institutional format. So what you generally see when it comes to the Reg Ds, you're really seeing independent sponsors and they're really selling direct to the accredited investor public. They're not going through these institutions. Sure, sure. Understood. I would add one caveat to that, and I'll see if you agree with me. I would say another reason that those products don't sit on big distribution platforms is because the finite amount of equity that's ultimately raised, which is typically smaller, $30, $50 million, right? If you're going to take on all that time and the cost of doing yeah. all the stuff that you mentioned before to get it approved on a platform where you have 20,000 reps out there talking about the product all the time, if you put a $50 million slug of something available after all that work, it would literally sell out in a day. Yeah. And so from a business model standpoint, it doesn't make any sense for them to do all the work to get it to the platform for something that was literally could be discussed in about one day. Yeah, that's right. It could be it literally it could sell out in two or three days at that level. You're exactly right, which is why, you know, to just just even to sort of get the time to be able to make the offer. If you've got a 50 million dollar offering, you're just not going to get a lot of time. No. It's, it's not going to have much significance to the broker dealer that's out there doing institutional work. No, that's true. You know, it's funny. And and also today, there's more than accredited investors. There's a qualified investor, which is what, like $2.1 million. And then there's a qualified purchaser, which is like $5 million. And there are all different types of investments that are available to people. The farther you kind of go up that ecosystem, right? Like you're deemed to be more sophisticated and you can take on more potential risk and less potential liquidity and all those other elements as you move up that spectrum. So- You know, it's funny when I have those conversations with investors all the time, they're like, how come I've never heard of any of this stuff before? And I can't go talk to my friends about any of this because they're not in the same club I'm in or they don't understand or they haven't done it before. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why they say you're kind of in the big boy club. You know, you're deemed sophisticated. You need to be able to make a decision because you're not going to be able to ask your inner circle or circle people because they probably won't qualify to be able to participate in this at the level that you're at. No, I think that that's absolutely right. That, that, so I look just in our lives um, and in my network, were I not a lawyer doing this type of securities work, I wouldn't be coming across these because it's all by referral. And certainly the investors that I represent, were they not in investment circles, they wouldn't because they certainly can't can't find these things based on the institutional uh, distribution channels, they find it based upon the independence. And unless you're plugged in, you don't get the chance to see them. That's very true. If you're not plugged in, you don't get to see it. That's true. Very true. So let's pivot a little bit. So we talked about your entrepreneurial background, the senior living space. Um, we talked about the type of law that you do. And so let piggyback on that a little bit. So most of the stuff is syndication. So a little bit of MA work, a little bit of real estate stuff, sell side by side, and then, you know, and then mostly syndication work. But you've written 14 books. That's a lot of thought leadership over the years. Is it like every time you learn something that was super nuanced in a space, you're like, I'm going to memorialize this and get it all out of me and turn it into a book? You know, they all came about based on the education. So the first book I ever wrote uh, was called Finding Your Niche. And it was really a book about what I looked to do, which was to find my niche in terms of business. But I was super curious because most people have never written one book. And I'm in the process of putting together a book now. And we talked about that a little bit on the pre-call. I'm working with Forbes to put together a book, right? So you put together, I can tell you, it's not easy. For the people that are listening, if you've ever thought about doing it, getting all the crazy stuff that's in your head down and organized on paper so that it all makes sense to somebody else is not an easy task. And you've tackled that 14 times. Let me kind of just tell you how it is, because for mine, it was a little bit easier. I think that it would be incredibly difficult for me to sit down and to actually like literally tap out a book. So that's not the way that I did them. Uh, The way that I did it, so finding your niche, it was for me, this sort of the intellectual processes. I remember sitting in a Chinese restaurant uh, someplace in Minneapolis when I was uh, teaching seminars 
and I'm writing out information about how I am processing, you know, the, the lessons of entrepreneurship, you know, and I'm coming up with things like functional processing and integrational processing and things like that. And I integrated them into a training program, which I called, I forgot exactly what I called the original one, uh, something like an entrepreneur entrepreneurship workshop or something of that nature. And so I created the curriculum for it and I started teaching it. And I taught it for quite you know a while because it was only a one day. And I eventually went into the boot camps of five days. But it was a one day and I made it better, I made it better and better and better. And I kept getting these concepts. So what I eventually did is I brought in tape, you know, and, and I taped, I recorded the entire seminar when I had it down to the types of stories that I would tell and the concepts and so forth. Because it's a lot easier to create when you're in person looking at somebody's eyes and you're telling a story and it's flat. Or you tell a story and man, you you saw that they got that right away. Mm-hmm. And so, so far and so on. So at that point, then you get it and you get a transcript of that. And then you work with somebody as an editor who is going to just simply edit it down to started with spoken word, ends up with written word. So I did that with, with finding your niche. And I did that with several others. I was teaching, um, you know, in an MBA program at a local college, you know, Rollins College. Yeah. I was teaching at Rollins. So what I was talking about was at a time in which things were really rapidly changing. And you were having, you know, it's kind of like the whole concept of uh, if it's not broken, break it. And it was that whole concept of, of just completely demolishing. And I started thinking about the fact that there was another way to do it. And by that point, I was running another company, which turned out to be a very big company. And that, that turned out to be a $250 million a year company that ended up getting decimated by the recession. But in the meantime, I went from one to $250 million in seven years and one to $40 million in EBITDA in a seven-year period of time. We had 600 employees uh, and so forth and so on. But what we were doing is we were just rapidly growing. And it was really just incredible fun and all of that. But my thought was, it's not about if it's not broken, break it. It's really about incorporating, if you will, the opportunity to be able to integrate into the DNA of the organization, just incessant change, just Mm -hmm. constant change. You're You're constantly morphing. And so I called the book Morphing Radical Evolution for revolutionary times. And that was the whole concept. And then, so with that concept in mind, I wrote kind of the first chapter, which was the precipice of this, the ability to be able to say, well, who are we looking for? And then because I was teaching at MBA school, I had the MBA students identify one company that illustrated these particular concepts that I used as the chapter one of the book. And then the rest of the book, was based on the research these MBA students had done. So that was another one. I told you about reinventing senior living and how that came about and and so forth and so on. Um, Cash in on cash flow was exactly the same thing. I was teaching the American Cash Flow Institute, five-day training program. And, you know, obviously we had that down pat. We had human beings like, you know, Matt Chansey, for example. We knew their histories. We knew their stories and all of that. And I had come up with a concept of cash flows. And a cash flow is a uh, anything that you can buy for present value, future income streams. And so at first, I started with mortgages, and then it became business notes, and then it became equipment leases, until I categorized it into 60 different cash flow income streams, falling into five primary categories. So I had the structure and the architecture for the book. The royalties in there? Royalty Roy- royalties, absolutely in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, the royalties were, were clearly in there. So I put that all into, of course, the education, which ultimately resulted in the five-day training program. And I brought in the recorders at a certain point, did the transcripts, and then created the book out of that. So I don't know what the lesson is, but I will tell you 
dictation is my best friend. Yeah. You know, I think that when people think about writing a book, they think about having to write it by sitting at a you know keyboard and having to bang it out. I've never done that. I've done a lot of writing. I write for the Orlando Sentinel every week. Sure. So I've done a lot of writing, but honestly, I couldn't write a book that way. I could never sure. do it. But if you could just, you know, you can get the Philips app and a smartphone and you can dictate in and they have the, they automatically transcribe for you. They send you the transcription and take your thoughts and just dictate your thoughts. And you don't have to worry about, oh man, that'll not look, that, that's not going to look good on, on paper. You can, that's what editing is for. Right. But you can actually be writing these thoughts down. So 14 books later, that's my advice to you. That's good advice. And I, it's funny is I have evolved to the point where I, it's look, I talk about this stuff all day, every day. So it's in my head and I have certain talk tracks, the way I explain through stories and narratives. So, you know, just breaking those apart and ordering and sequencing them and creating outlines. And then to your point, hitting dictation on a phone and then talking out that whole next paragraph of all the different iterations of the way I present the content. And it ends up being, you know, 10 minutes long or 12 minutes long that I just rambled into the phone. And then they, and then it, you know, a dictation person puts it all together in a word. And like you said, you kind of go through that iterative process where the writers will, um, you know, do some editing to it and clean it up and take spoken word and structure it so that it looks like written word. You know? Yeah. So that it's actually that that's right. That, that, you know, some of just the stuff that we talk, like, you know, all the stuff that everybody says and that stuff comes out of there and, and all of that. I mean, for you though, Matt, that would be, I mean, you could probably write three books. Um, just based upon just who you are and based on what you do, you literally could write three different books on three different subject areas in your areas of expertise. And you could do that by doing nothing more than just simply talking into a microphone and having it recorded. And as far as your, as far as your, your viewers and your listeners are concerned, there, there's no question that everybody and I truly mean this, everybody has a book in them. They're everyone, you know, in our senior living, these seniors are fascinating. I mean, you sit there and you talk to some of these seniors, they've actually had real lives, right? Yeah. You know, you're talking 80, 80 to 90 years old, 95 years old. They've had lives and they've lived lives that, that they tell and can tell personal stories that we could only access through history books. And to have the opportunity to listen to them you want to be able to say, you know, let me put a microphone in front of you. You got a book inside you that literally could come out. And so the easiest way to do that, you get the Philips download on the app and uh, you start using that and you get them to send you transcripts on it. Uh, and it's very inexpensive, uh, the, 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 the transcripts. And before you know it, you've got yourself a book. I think we just found the title of your 15th book. Everyone has a book inside them. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> I mean, look, you have the senior facilities, right? Like everybody has a book inside of them. Could be a mashup of you just taking a 10 minute interview with everybody saying, tell me about a couple of the most interesting things that you ever did in your life. And you took a mashup of people just in your senior centers talk. I mean, if they've lived to 80, 90 years old, they've had some amazing experiences, both positive and negative, just a series of interviews of people in assisted living facility. And you're going, you think all these people are the same, but yeah, these people all had very different backgrounds. They all ended up at the same place at the same time here, but how they got there is very different. And it's a collaboration of the best and the worst of, of 90 years of, you know. Matt, I got, I got to tell you, I, I hope I don't owe you a royalty for this, right? <laughs> so I got to tell you, that's a great idea. It's, that is seriously a great idea. We're on every Friday. Uh, we do our, our sales calls. We're our, our sales departments uh, and our vice president of sales for the communities and all that. And then each of the sales teams for the three communities. And we're on our sales calls every Friday for an hour and a half. We hear the most incredible stories. And I hear it just because, you know, it's kind of like, obviously, that's what we do. We start with a Tuscan moment. Yeah. And we talk about a particular story and, and all that kind of thing. 
I got to tell you, I have never thought of connecting it to actually writing a book about those stories. Take all those stories, turn them into, and guess what? That becomes the book. So when people are thinking about moving or transitioning their parents into adult, into senior care, you're like, look, we know that these are special people. We know they had a special life. This is just that next chapter where they're at, whether they want to be here or not want to be here. But we recognize the individuality of those people and their special story. And here's how we memorialize it. Like, look at some of our other guests that have stayed with us. And like, I, I think it becomes a great. I don't know. I just, it just came out when you said it, it just clicked. I think it's a great, I honestly, I think it's a great idea. There you go. There you go. Well, we'll have to work out a contract on that later. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, what I'll do is I'll have you go into the communities and interview them. There you go. There you go. We'll do our joint. The next book will be a joint book between the two of us. There you go. I got to get my first one done. You're so far ahead of me on this deal. I got to get my, it's getting there. It's, I, I had to get a process. Like you said, you've, you're looking at the process backwards going, I figured out how to get it all out of me. I, I didn't at first see the process of how to get it all out of me. And so the first part I struggled with was getting that process. Like I, I think I had the voice which is different than the process first. Right. And then right. I had to figure out how to get that voice to have a process so that I could extract the information. I think yeah. I've, since I figured that part out, it's gotten a little bit easier. But like you said, you, you there's, a, there's a hack to that. If you think you're going to sit down and scratch all that stuff out, like that's it overwhelms you with the magnitude of the scope of work that needs to be done. No question. It does. Of course it does. So I will offer this to you, Matt, that honestly, I will be glad to, if anytime you want, some pointers or advice, or even if you want me to look over your over your stuff, um, I'll be happy to. I'll be happy to just simply do that. Good stuff. Well, I appreciate it. Well, hey, we're kind of running long on time here today. It was a great interview. Anything else we want to close with? Anything we didn't hit or we should hit or any closing remarks? Oh, no, I'm good. It was just, you know, I had no idea what I was going to come on the show and talk about, but you make it pretty easy to talk about anything. So, I just appreciated the invitation and I know um, I had been referred to you by somebody that has high respect for you and uh, wanted me to be on, on your show, your podcast. So I'm just delighted and just thank you for reaching out to me. Good. Well, I'm glad you participated. It was a lot of fun and I love getting to learn about new people. And, you know, you've got a very interesting backstory, like all the way that you got to where you're at. So I greatly appreciate you sharing with our audience today. So um, under all the podcasts that we do, all of your contact information for your firm and everything will be laid out there. So we're going to curate that, put it all together. So all your contact information will be there. So it's pretty easy to find from that point. So I appreciate your time, but everyone, thanks for attending uh, today's podcast. This was Matt Chancy, Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast. Today's guest, attorney uh, Larry Pino, obviously in the commercial space, works with businesses when they're buying and selling, works with real estate when they're buying and selling, works if you're looking to syndicate for investments. He said, he, and he looks at it not only from the risk of an attorney, but the entrepreneurial side as a business owner. And uh, so can add a lot of value. And what I've learned over my business career is that value creation is wealth creation, right? Absolutely. No, no question. <laughs> so no good question. stuff. Thank you for the recap. And remember, my invitation to um, come visit us when you're in Winter Park is always here. So we're going to do it without a doubt. So thanks so much, everybody. This was this was Matt Chancy with Larry Pino, and we'll see you next week. All right, thanks so much. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions, brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.